If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. The Alabama ancestors of Sean Kimber have inspired her award-winning quilts. Kimber uses quilts to engage people in complicated ideals such as identity, difference, and social justice. Kimber is a professor of mathematics at Lafayette College. What's the oldest thing you know about your family's oral history? Turns out I know a ton about my mother's background, and she's from Charleston, South Carolina. But on my father's side, there actually is a pretty big blank that happens after my great-grandfather. We do know that the homestead that we have in Redally, Alabama, is the place where his ancestors were enslaved, at least, you know, the last generation of them before slavery was abolished. Randolph County, so it's right on the Georgia border, it's about the same height as Atlanta. And the population of Redally is just a little over 700, so it's not going to appear as a giant star, but it is the county seat, and so it is on maps. But it's, you know, close to Birmingham and Aniston. Growing up, were there quilters in the house? No, no quilters in my house, but definitely quilts. So my great-grandmother, my dad's grandmother raised him, and she was the quilter that I know of. And he told stories of helping in the bees, like pushing the needles back up after the quilters would push them down. And um, these quilts were on our beds, just beautiful improvisational patchwork that had patches on top of patches. It was just seeing this in your house, having these these treasures that were passed on along the family that became the inspiration. What happened to trigger this interest of yours? So I think I was always interested in the patchworks, and my dad would tell the stories of the making of the quilts, and they were probably his most prized possessions. So there was just this sense that these were very important things. I grew up in Tallahassee. I needed to go to formals every year, um, multiple formals, and my mother was never going to buy me more than one dress. So, But she would buy me a bowl of satin, and so I learned how to sew to make my own dresses. So I learned all the skills of sewing. But it was only in 2005 when I applied for tenure that I decided to start exploring actually making clothes. As you can imagine, I had other things on my mind. <laughs> like getting the PhD in math and all that. And so I wasn't really, you know, indulging as much in artwork at that time. Did quilting start as a way of dealing with the stress of going through tenure? Absolutely. Kind of a hazing process once you apply for tenure. So you've been on probation for about five years. You've really kind of ratcheted up your game to the top level that it can be. All of a sudden, you have to write this multi-thousand-page document to defend your life. And then in my case, I am a black woman handing over my life to a group of white males who do not understand how my job might be different than theirs. 
am an um, overachiever, so it wasn't that my file wasn't going to present as well, but I just knew that they did, didn't know how to interpret that maybe I had other challenges in my way, other obstacles to surmount to get to there, and would they really actually understand what I was trying to say about the, the remarkableness of my achievement? So the quilting gave me a place where I got to make all the decisions. And it didn't really matter what the outcome would be. So did you say, hey, Dad, send me some uh, great-grandma's quilts, or what happened? My first quilt was extremely traditional, and I used vintage fabrics from the late 1800s. So I lived in eastern Pennsylvania, which is sort of the cradle of the, Revol- uh, the Revolutionary War, but also Gettysburg is nearby. So you have a lot of the war um, thinking about remembrance going on, right? And so you have available to you a lot of chunks of fabric from that time that are not archival quality. So it's okay to chop into them. And so I was making very classical quilts out of Civil War fabric, trying to achieve the skills required. It was only after my dad passed away, actually, that I started doing more artistic things, more things that were closely related to who I am. So I'd already discussed with my dad. He had hundreds of ties, neckties, and we were going to make a quilt together out of them. And so I inherited this pile of ties. So I started making two quilts, one for each of my siblings. And it was in those where I just kind of broke free of the tradition coming to me from, let's just say, the big house. Started actually embracing the more improvisational style of those quilts that I knew from my childhood. So it's actually only through traumatic experiences that I make these turns and actually dive deep. And so little did I know, my mother was actually collecting pants from all the members of my family. And so this giant box of jeans and khakis and painter's pants kind of landed on my doorstep. And that's just really ignited me into thinking about the reasons why we make a quilt and the parts of our identity that are expressed by the quilts that we make. Wow, you just unpacked a lot. You mentioned that uh, you were an overachiever. Are you the oldest in your family? Are you were first born? I'm the youngest in my family. There's a five-year split between me and my siblings, and they are twins, my sister and brother. In some sense, we were so far apart that I was always the youngest. I was always treated like a little sister, but I did have a moment in time where I was the only one in the house and kind of got to achieve that sense of being the oldest, right? There had to be something in there because that is a characteristic of uh, firstborns that they're, they're overachievers. I married a firstborn who was also an academic, so I have some inside information on on the stuff we're talking about. It's not psychobabble. It's it's lived experiences. (laughs) Did you play any sports growing up? More into music. Everybody in my family is a musician of some sort, so in my extended family on my dad's side. Uh, So we were all expected to learn an instrument at some point, and we all kind of dropped it at some point. I think I probably held on to it. The longest uh, in my immediate family. So I played flute and piccolo, you know, mainly chosen just because of my size. I went to uh, what we might call magnet schools today, but just really intensive 
arts curriculum going on in addition to heavy science curriculum just down the street from Florida State University and FAMU Mm -hmm. and had access to the music department at both schools because of the great connection that our band director made for us. So we had free independent lessons with faculty at these universities. That really kind of jettisoned a lot of us forward. So we ended up having fairly professional careers in our teens during high school. Where did you decide to go to school? And what were, say, like the top three schools that you were thinking about? My parents went off to college in 1958, and they didn't have a ton of options. My mother was actually encouraged by the state of South Carolina not to try to integrate and was given a scholarship to go outside of the state to an HBCU elsewhere. And that's actually how they met. Neither of them really had a sense that one ought to have a choice for school. (laughs) So I was told that I would live at home and go to Florida State um, because that would be the cheapest option for them. And I, you know, was also achieving in science in high school. And so I was able to get a bunch of scholarships to be able to go as far as the University of Florida instead. So I never really thought of myself as having options. University of Florida, you know, they more than paid, covered my my, uh, tuition. The perfect way to actually establish independence from my father (laughs) and uh, start to make some of my own decisions. But I was told also that I would major in engineering. So that also kind of narrowed the possibilities of where I would go. So you you end up going to University of Florida, and I'm assuming from what you just said, you didn't have to take out student loans. No, no. And so I was able to actually establish some independence. So I did start out in that engineering program and discovered that I didn't really like it. But I did like the math classes that I was taking, and I decided to change my major to math. And my father really did think that I wouldn't eat for the rest of my life. He, didn't, he could not imagine the kind of job that one could get with a degree in math. But it really required that I had the financial independence to be able to make that decision for myself, to have the confidence to move on. And, of course, I had no idea what job I would get, but I just knew I didn't want to do the engineering curriculum anymore. What was your first gig after undergrad? Did you go right to graduate school, or what happened? I definitely knew that I wanted to earn a PhD just because it would be one degree more than my parents got. I was <laughs> never totally sure what I wanted the PhD to be in. I'm a competitive person. I'm sorry. Job market in 1992 was pretty bad. And so a lot of us just kept going uh, to graduate school immediately just because there were no jobs to be had. So I went straight on to UNC Chapel Hill. At what point did you say, I want to be a college professor? I mean, I think I always loved my teachers, and so, and even when we, like, played pretend with my friends, I would always pretend to be the teacher. There was something in me that knew that my calling would be teaching, so it's just the natural path from there. You go on, and you become a professor, and then as we get to tenure, that's when the quilting kicks in, and at what point did quilting did you realize you were a gifted quilter i am uh very much into artisanship i i think i realized from the beginning that i had 
skills that came from making all those dresses in my past. And so I can make a traditional quilt like nobody's business. But in terms of being an artist, right, that's a whole different mindset. How soon after did you start being recognized by others uh, who knew the field? Because of my job, I actually uh, presented my work online under a pseudonym for a lot of years. So not until I was promoted to full professor did I actually come out of the closet as a quilter and start exhibiting. It was fast and furious from there. It took a while for me to feel comfortable having my double life be um, known to everyone. It was at my first exhibition that I won awards. I was an athlete for a very long time at a pretty high level. And when I was in graduate school, I hid that part of my identity the entire time. I did not want to be considered Mm -hmm. a a dumb jock. So I just put it in the closet and didn't take it out until I had tenure. So I totally understand. What were your colleagues' responses when they found out, here's the mad quilter in our department? So my first quotes were actually an exploration of censorship um, in language being presented on quilts. And so the F word was dropped often on a quilt. And as you can imagine, men slash boys are going to actually like that. (laughs) They kind of saw that, uh, and here's the cliche, it's not your grandmother's quilt was a way for us to get closer as human beings than understanding that I had this other side, that they never heard me say any of those words out loud. <laughs> Just putting it all out there and presenting it to the world gave them a better sense of who I am, right? I mean, we faculty members of color live not only double lives, but like multiple lives where we don't expose most of who we are in most of our lives. And to let someone have a glimpse inside is a major step forward. And to have them accept it is just golden. Wow. And that is so profound. You know, I think of Du Bois's term double consciousness. And I think you're right. Uh, as an academic yeah. and African-American, there is that double consciousness. Once you got full professor, how did that also change your politics on campus, in Senate meetings, in department meetings, what you say now, and, of course, what you do as it, as it relates to quilting other parts. How has that changed having that power as a full professor? It has changed the interpersonal relationships between faculty and my department for me. But, no, I never had a problem speaking out. So I've been fighting the fight since my first day as a faculty member. I would not be able to live in good conscience noticing problems that were that have solutions and not address them. You know, my first semester on campus, I was faced with the president of the college addressing a, an egregious error that he had made that he and the provost apologized to me <laughs> uh, later, both in writing and in the voicemails that I still have saved, kind of really reinforced that I was actually brought in to to make some of this change happen in the community. I pick my battles very, very carefully, so I'm not kind of overstepping, but I've never held back. The show will be right back. 
for related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. The best way to support the podcast is to tell a friend, share the show on Facebook and Twitter, or send them to our website at fredopi.com. If you have had success in something, do you know why? Or is it an accident? Can you repeat it? Well, I had to start thinking about that in my life. If I've had some success, to what do I attribute that success? I concluded that my success came down to what I call my Super 7. The seven principles have been the formula for success that I developed to thrive on and off the field. If you apply these principles, you'll see that they are universal and you can use them in all areas of your life. The book will be available in March. Pre-order a copy of the Super 7 as a paperback book for $9.99 and receive three CD recordings of my live events for $15. That's a $25 offer for $9.99. Go to our online store at fredopiespeaks.com and order it now. What's something you thought about being a professor before you became one? You can look back and say, man, I really had that wrong. I am at a small liberal arts college where the intention is that you're going to engage in having deep relationships with your students and know them as human beings. And that is very different than my professor in grad school. (laughs) I think I had a misconception about the degree to which one could be a full human being and still be a professor. Let me also back up and ask the question I asked you about undergrad, but for grad school, how did you pay for grad school? Did you get out without loans as well? In science in the United States, um, you should never pay a penny for your grad school. Federal government actually subsidizes it. So explain to people, how does one go to grad school without debt? So all the major universities, whether public or private, receive federal funding specifically to encourage people to do deeper studies in science and engineering. That means that they're recruiting the best and the brightest. And by the way, these are dollars that are earmarked specifically for Americans because there is a kind of pipeline issue about Americans going on and doing this kind of study. If you have achieved an above average level in your undergraduate level, if you are intending to go on to a PhD, then not only will they cover your tuition, but they will pay you a salary. And that salary is given to you in exchange for either teaching uh, lower-level math classes or whatever classes might be taught, or for just being a research assistant in a laboratory where you are also honing your skills and becoming a better uh, scientist of any kind. So it is actually just purely a part of the application process. And I highly encourage everyone to do it. I want to close with some questions I ask guests. They're kind of rapid questions, but it give me in the audience a chance to learn some, some things about how you think and your philosophy. Are you ready? Okay. Can you give me a hero, a hardship, and a highlight in your life? First one that came to mind was Mildred Hill-Lubin, who is a professor of English at the University of Florida. She teaches mainly um, African literature and translation. 
And I took a composition class from her my first semester at University of Florida. I learned so much from her about writing and, and about literature that I kept taking her classes. So every year I took at least one African literature or African American literature class from her. She eventually served on my PhD committee, dissertation committee. I needed that honorific. I needed a, another black woman in the room with me for that event. A hardship. Hmm. I, I have lived a charmed life, right? My parents, it was their generation that overcame, overcame extreme poverty, overcame deep, deep discrimination and got us to a place where uh, we lived in a middle-class neighborhood. We went to very good schools. That doesn't mean that I didn't deal with discrimination, but I uh, would never uh, try to pull out a hardship uh, in comparison to what my parents and my ancestors had to endure. And a highlight? So I made this quote that says, I can't breathe nine times in white on a black patchwork background and of course these are the dying words of Eric Garner in Staten Island uh, as he was held in a chokehold on a street corner in the broad daylight his dying words but just dreams of anguish in trying to understand what the heck is going on in our society I showed this quote at an event called Quilt Con (laughs) which uh, was in Pasadena California it created such a stir that it was even on the front page of the LA Times and it's been purchased by a major museum. I would say that that's a pretty good highlight. Wow, that's very impressive. How long does it take you from start to finish? The average quilt that's six feet by six feet would take me two years and that's because I do a lot of handwork Mm -hmm. in the process. I'm an academic that works almost always at the institution where I work because if I was home, I'd be in the kitchen more than I would be behind the computer writing. For you, is it relaxing yes. or is it, is, it, is it like that for you, like totally relaxing, get you out of your, you know, out of the, out of the academic circle and the stress and sometimes the boringness that can happen with grading papers? At this point, it depends on the subject matter, right? So the early clubs were certainly the place where I would meditate, where mm-hmm. I would spend time to disengage, because I do want to not be uh, continuing what I've been doing all day when I come home to work on these things. But if I'm working on something that's emotional, uh, then it can be uh, more more draining than uh, the average just regular old quilt that I might make. So when I cook, I'm listening to podcasts. It's probably one of the reasons why I started my own show, Mm because I just love podcasts, and I can cook for hours doing that. What do you do when you're quilting? Podcasts, definitely, and a lot of music. I like to constantly be learning, and podcasts are a nice way to hear how other people think and to kind of adopt new perspectives on issues where I I thought I knew it all, but no, I don't know. (laughs) There are some clips where I need complete silence. Top three or four podcasts that you like? I like Stay Tuned to Preet. So Preet Bharara was a U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. After being fired by Donald Trump, started his own podcast that explained what's going on in the news. 
comprehensive approach coming from a lawyer who has seen it all. 99% Invisible with Roman Mars is all about those sort of design things that you might not notice um, when you're walking around town. You want to read the plaques. Sometimes those historical plaques give you um, a different way to look at a building or a manhole cover or any, or any sort of design thing that you might walk by. I like The Good Place, this TV show, philosophy-based show, and it has a companion podcast that does episode by episode behind the scenes, like understanding how the script was written, how the, um, how the CGI works. It's really kind of fascinating. But what I love about it is just, just the hugely, deeply positive vibe that it has about life and about the potential of human beings to be good. Dinner with three people, dead or alive, and why would you choose these three? The, the first, you know, answer that I would give that's really deeply heartfelt is definitely my great-grandmother who passed away when I was two, getting her at the table with my mother's mother, who, you know, there probably couldn't be two more different people based on my readings of their letters and things and what I know of them through family stories. So having them at the same table would be pretty fascinating. And then probably my grandfather. So on my, my mother's side, I definitely he died many years before I was born. Let's even go back more and more generations. I want to learn what it was like uh, on the plantation. I want to learn what it was like before the Middle Passage. I would love to have a family reunion. That's, that's really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Sean, what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Great. So kindnesses happen daily, and a lot of them we don't notice. And I would say particularly those are actually the best ones. I have a colleague here in the art department who's a sculptor who, when he found out that I made quilts, he asked to see them. At that time, I, I had no sense that I was making art in a matter of two hours of him flipping through my stack of quilts and asking me pointed questions. I was transformed in who I am and how I think about what I do. He didn't have to do that, but he absolutely changed my life in a matter of a couple of hours. Can we give him a shout out? Who is he? Nestor Hill. Wow. Last name spelled G-I-L. Look him up. He's a Cuban, and he makes a lot of sculpture out of bread and inner tubes. Books, two or three, that have helped you along your journey thus far. Okay, so first I'll nerd out and tell you a math book called Rings of Continuous Functions by Gilman and Jarrison. It uh, would be the foundational text of the research that I do day to day. Not a week goes by that I don't flip to a page in there to recenter myself on. Uh, 100 Years of Solitude mm. by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, that would be the book that I reread the most often. And um, I think for good reasons, it's magical realism, but it's about multiple generations of a family. It's a great book. I want you to write a book of success. For the show, 
success is defined as having the greatest positive impact they could have on the world around them. Three chapter titles in your book of success, what would they be? Be kind, have good table manners, everyone is valuable. Number three, it doesn't matter what others think. It doesn't matter what other, other people think. Yeah, just do it. This is in the context of art. You can't be your best if you're constantly looking over your shoulder and thinking about what other people think. What are the number right. of things in life I would not have done if I remained focused on what will other people think? Exactly. That is a Sean Kember. Thank you for coming on the show. Where can people see your work online? On Instagram, uh, you can search on my name if you spell it correctly, C-H-A-W-N-E, last name Kimber, K-I-M-B-E-R. My handle is Koshi Complete, C-A-U-C-H-Y-C-O-M-P-L-E-T-E. And then I also have a website that is the same, koshicomplete.wordpress.com. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show. If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you. 